John, let's ease into a, yeah. a couple of introductory questions. Who do you know from the 20s? I don't yes. know. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Sean had never heard of either Roy Rogers or Wild Bill Hickok <laughs> either, much less his sidekick. And I'm trusting the impersonation you did was subpar at best. No, it was spot on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, so first of all, uh, let's ease into this, but tell us a little bit about your congregation. Yeah, so we, uh, if you guys don't know, we actually planted out of Redemption Arcadia. We're uh, almost five years old. Uh, we took about 60 of us from, from Redemption Arcadia at the time we were meeting on Thomas at the old Presbyterian Church. And uh, we met at a theater for a while and then kind of outgrew that theater. And now we meet at Centennial High School. And even now, um, kind of we continue to grow and we're trying to think through, even as staff last week, trying to think through services. And uh, the demographic is, I mean, we're younger. Frank has always said when you, a church is always going to look 10 years younger and 10 years older than the lead pastor. And so we tend to reflect that, I think is probably true. Um, yeah, we don't have nobody from, I think, our congregation would have any idea what you had said before I came up. Um, uh, yeah, so, we're, but it's great. God's honestly moving. It's really cool to, to uh, see what God's doing as we can see, not just grow numerically, but just spiritually. God's moving in some cool ways. So about you personally, if you look at the website for yeah. Peoria and you look at your bio, you make reference to a rather troubled and dysfunctional upbringing. Can, can you sort of talk about how that led you to Christ and then to a role as a pastor? Yeah, some of you guys know my story. So I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. Both my parents were drug addicts growing up, both made and uh, did meth, and uh, in and out of foster care for a little while. Uh, I ended up, my sophomore year, between my freshman year and sophomore year in high school, I ended up going into this small little church. Uh, was introduced to Christ as a highly charismatic church. It was crazy. And uh, came to Christ that way. That same year, I met my wife. Uh, it was ended up being adopted by a family. I played basketball at the, the time and adopted by one of the families of the other players on the team. So I was taken in by them, and my life kind of different trajectory. Um, ended up going to that charismatic church closed, so I ended up going to another Assemblies of God church that uh, was there for 10 years as a pastor on staff for eight of them. And, uh, yeah, it was just from there, essentially what took place was started to just run into not just theological differences, but I think... Yeah, we'll just leave it. Just differences. And uh, ended up working at a vitamin company while I was at Redemption Tempe uh, for a while. And then for a couple years here at Arcadia, I uh, did that as well. So kind of did that. And then full-time the last year, I did a three-year residency here. The last year of my residency, I was full-time here to go plant Redemption Peoria. So one of the questions, sort of an inside baseball question, I think people are always curious about since we have nine congregations. What's it like to be part of a, a cabal of nine senior pastors that get together and talk about things. Are you guys competitive? Is it a close-knit group? Yeah, super competitive, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, the way that I described it, and I, I said this in first service, and I'll just say it again, you got to think of it not in a cliche family way, but think of names when it comes to family. So you have your kids. They have the, all the same last name, but they're different individuals, right? So however they interact, they may be different, but they reflect your last name, and, and I think that's true. Each lead pastor brings something different to the table, um, I, coming from Arcadia, there's just a different culture there, not just with the leadership, but just Peoria is different from Arcadia. Uh, and so when it comes to competition, I mean, they're really, I'm not saying this, there's just none of that. Uh, the reality is we, we get to celebrate the differences. Uh, Frank does things differently than I would and vice versa. And I mean this, I really, I love the way that we get to be different in that. And so not much competition. I mean, we're all pretty much all athletes though. So they're probably, probably there. It could be on our sinful days, but yeah. I mean, I know Peoria is better than Arcadia, but I mean, it's not like a competition. <laughs> it's not like a competition. It's just we're better. He gets bolder in these statements the more we get into the service. Third service, I'm yes. just like, yes, yes, the kingdom of God will arrive at Peoria. Yes. <laughs> so, so, 
<laughs> so, you know, if you've ever talked to Frank uh, at all about Peoria and about Sean, you'll notice he, he, he is very fond of Sean. He sometimes refers to him as the son that he, he wished he'd had. Uh, so tell me about your relationship with Frank. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. When I came to Redemption Church, just in general, my experience with leaders and pastors was um, the classic, like, 40-yard fake-out. So the tradition that I got saved into was, like, the man of God. He's a holy man of God, and, like, it's just, just it is what it is. And the closer you got to him, you realize this dude's not as legit as he says he is, right? His devotional life is not as serious as... You know, the way you know scripture, the way he treats people wasn't, that was just my experience. It's not true for everyone. That's just my experience. And I brought that baggage to Redemption Church. And so when I started a residency at Arcadia, I think I projected a lot of that on Frank and kept my distance. But what came to be true was the exact opposite. From afar, there wasn't a lot of touting of how, it's just, but as you got closer, I'm like, this dude knows his Bible. He really cares about people. I mean, there are countless things that go on beyond this, behind the scenes with a lot of you, but just people, honestly, don't even go to the church. The jails is a perfect example of, um, I know he's talked about it from the stage before, I don't know how much he talks about it now, but how much work he does there that nobody knows about. I mean, he really does think through Matthew 25 of caring for the lost and the least, and um, that, that affects, I think, the way that you interact, and that changed my view of leadership, that changed my way of pastoring, and honestly, a lot of just my upbringing changed my way of fathering, because um, I think spiritually, he took me under his wing, and, and one thing that Frank is not is a micromanager. I mean, he leads really well, is gives people freedom to flesh out. And so for the last year of my residency, he was just like, Sean, go, do it. We're going to cover you. And you guys covered my salary for a year. I was here at Arcadia, but I wasn't getting paid to work at Arcadia. I was getting paid to plant a church. And that was, that was on every, you know, everyone at the church's dime. And that was at his leadership. Detriment. It was awesome. And so um, there's a lot of things that I think can share. But I think that was my probably fondest experience with him. So let me ask you one theological question that I didn't ask you in the first service. Let's do it. Yeah. Predestination. So, so, Go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah. so, so what is the one doctrine of faith that you find is the hardest to communicate to your congregation or, or which is the hardest for them to understand and apply? Um, the hardest probably emotionally, not, not just doctrinally, emotionally is the doctrine of hell. Um, I believe in it. I believe it's a real place. There's no question. But I think I'm far closer to where C.S. Lewis emotionally is. It's really tough to wrestle with. There's people that I know that are going to hell, and hell's a very real place, and it's not a state of mind, and um, eternity is a long time. And so I know when I see the Lord face to face, I'll understand more. I feel like I have the right answers to explain, but as you talk to someone whose son is on the wrong path and or just passed away, and you do a funeral, someone who's not a believer, that's emotionally just it wrecks you. You're like, you just don't know what to do with that. So there's a lot of things, hypostatic union, Jesus being God, and that's not it. Trinity is super easy to explain, but besides like a lot of, I mean, <laughs> emotionally hell is probably the hard one. I thought you were going to say pedo-baptism. Yeah, yeah. We have some Presbyterians in our church, and yeah. we've had that conversation, but no. So how can we pray for you? What's going on in your life? Yeah, that, we, so I, uh, right now, I think everyone uses the cliche of we're busy, and I, I hate you saying that, but my wife right now is doing a 30-hour-a-week volunteer uh, project. And you have kids, correct? Yeah, we have four kids. So uh, she's doing this internship to become a dietetic technician. She's finishing up her degree to do that. I start a demon, uh, which is a doctorate ministry program uh, this fall. Uh, and so that's going to be extremely busy. Uh, and, um, and then, yeah, we have kids and I'll be coaching basketball at my kids' school. So it is going to be, we're, we're trying to process what it means. And then there's all that you figure out, finances and time and all that stuff. So we're trying to lock everything in. So to pray for oh. that would be helpful. Okay. Well, let me pray for you. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing Sean into our midst. Thank you for his being a man of God that, that cares after you and, and loves his people. Um, as, as he leaves here today, let him know that he goes with our best wishes and prayers that, that he stays strong and grow in his knowledge and love for, for God, for God's word, for God's people, that, that he have a double-down commitment to, to his shepherding and his pastoring, that you'll give him the strength and wisdom and discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit to enliven his, his, his work, and that you help him with time management, that the busyness of the world not intrude on the one true purpose that he has in life, and, and let him know always that he's loved and encouraged and supported by his congregation in Peoria, but by Big R and all the other congregations as well. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So now, would you stand for the reading of the word, please? Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Sean. Steve, great job. Appreciate that. Um, all right, so I'm going to jump right in. There's a lot to cover. We're going to go through a whole chapter. That's not the whole text that we're going to cover this morning. So uh, we got a lot to cover. I'll give us a little bit of background here in a second, but here's what I want to kind of declare to you up front. Um, I think I'm going to argue that uh, Exodus 2 at its core is a response, okay? It's a response uh, from God to what happens in Exodus 1. Now, I can't give you the whole background of the book of Exodus. I'm assuming uh, that was laid out uh, last week. But if you want to go back, you can listen to it. There's a lot of uh, intricacies of the story of Joseph and all that. But what we found in Exodus 1 was this back and forth. And it's really important that we pick up on this back and forth because Exodus 2 is not going to make a lot of sense if we don't. So the way that Exodus 1 rolls out is God is making this kind of move, this long play move that started with Abraham, that he's establishing his people ultimately here in Exodus in this foreign land. He's moving his kingdom along. Now, the dark forces that be under the power of Pharaoh at the time respond to what God is doing, seeing the people of God multiplying, and he tries to snuff it out. And he tries to snuff it out by adding all this forced labor. labor. But then what happens is God responds and says, well, I'm just going to make the females extremely fertile, right? He says, that's not going to stop. So they grow all the more. The people of God grow all the more. Well, Pharaoh sees God's response in that and says, okay, fine. If that's not going to work, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill all the firstborn males. What he's doing there is 
or some cultural appropriation, um, the hope would be that there would be assimilation. By killing all the males, he can give away the females to Egyptian men and slowly have the Israelites die off. And so there's a play here by the dark forces that be again under Pharaoh. They react to what God is doing. Well, well God has his own move next. He uses the midwives to not have these male children killed. So God moves and says, no, they're going to continue to live. And so Pharaoh then, what we get at the end of Exodus 1, is the last response of this back and forth. Pharaoh then responds with, okay, fine, if the midwives won't do it, then I'll just get my own people to do it. And the last part of uh, Exodus chapter 1 was that he calls all the people of Israel to kill the firstborn males, or all the people of Egypt to kill the firstborn uh, males of Israel. So there's back and forth. Chapter 2 picks up with God's response, and it's the seed that we get to see start growing uh, it's God's response to that back and forth that he wants, Pharaoh wants all of the people of God, all the males killed. God responds with these words. Listen to Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, uh, the story has been going really fast in Exodus 1. It was like 400 years a period of time, a long time. What we're going to find today, for some reason, God wants that narrative to slow down and almost go at certain points, minute by minute, hour by hour. And so we're supposed to hone in on this child. This child is God's response. Now, um, the way that I feel most comfortable teaching through a long narrative, because we're going to cover a whole chapter, is I'm going to just going to go verse by verse. I'm going to try to pull out some cool little tidbits and all that stuff. You go, see how this connects, see how that connects. Uh, and as we go through that, then what we'll do is at the end of two, I want to zoom out and go, okay, well, if chapter one is about a back and forth, what's chapter two about? If chapter one is about this battle, then what's chapter two ultimately about? And so that's the, the hope. So I'm going to go through some of these things. So again, here's, we have the story, God's response. Let's start with verse one and two. Uh, there's this child born. I want you to notice, first of all, that it's a Levite man and a Levite woman. And if you don't know this, it's God's move. He moves in this way to use priests. If you're not aware of this, the Levites of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes was a tribe fully of priests to take care of the other tribes. This tribe right here that he's using is the Levites. It's those, it's those priests. And so God uses the Levites to have this son be born. This mom has this son, three months old, goes, hey, I can't hide this baby anymore. And so she has to make a move, right? Because all the people of Egypt are trying to kill the firstborn or the males in general of, of uh, the people of Israel. So we have in verse three. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitmen and pitch. She made the child, or she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Uh, some co a cool little deal. Um, so she ends up taking this baby, puts it in a basket. The word basket only appears in one other section of scripture, and it appears 26 times in this section of scripture, and it is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It's the story of the ark. The same word for basket is the word for ark. Uh, kind of like God going, see, I have my salvation in the ark. Okay, no? Okay, Peoria would have loved that. Um, so, so it's just this cool, like God's bob and weave way of going, see what I'm doing here? Uh, and so he sent, she sends this, this basket down uh, the river. And uh, even uh, commentators would say that the way we have the Red Sea, the Red Sea grows out even grammatically from the Reed River. The Reed Sea is what we have. And so he places them among the reeds. God's doing a lot of this foreshadowing, which honestly you see a lot in Exodus in general. But let's go to verse 4. 
and his sister, the baby sister. We don't know who this baby is at this point, but it's, he's obviously important because of the, this uh, slowing down of the narrative. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her uh, young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she, sh- she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, or had compassion on him, took pity on him, and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So now the basket's out there. Uh, this, this boy's sister, which I would argue is uh, this woman named Miriam, we don't know for sure, but she'll be important later, she's watching from afar, and she sees what's going on. She sees Pharaoh's daughter coming up, and she's like, okay, what's going to happen? The baby's crying. Pharaoh's daughter says to one of her servants, bring that basket over here, opens it up. She sees this little baby, and the baby's crying, and she takes pity on him. Now, there, again, of all the foreshadowing that takes place in Exodus, it's hard not to notice certain things. There's only... Um, no, actually, there's, it doesn't appear again. Anywhere else in scripture where had compassion on or took pity on does not come from the lens of God having compassion or pity on someone else. No other place in scripture is there having compassion or pity on from one human to another outside of God in the flesh and Jesus and God in the rest of scripture. And so what I, what I would argue, God in a lot of ways is saving uh, this little baby in the same way that he's going to use this little baby to save other people, okay? And I want you to kind of keep that in your mind as we continue to go through the text, but it, it only appears that way. So verse seven, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? So nurse the child, you, uh, the child for you. And verse eight says, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went, this is his sister, and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child away and nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So remember, the daughter's watching, sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up the basket, has compassion. And so the daughter steps in. She sees the play at hand. She goes, oh, hey there, ma'am, would, would you want me? You're like a ruler. I can get one of the Hebrew midwives. She knows who this baby is. I can get one of the Hebrew midwives to take care of, of that child. And the Pharaoh's daughter, who had compassion on this child, goes, absolutely. Well, she knows, the sister knows who it is, grabs her mom, the baby's mom, brings her back and says, take care of this child. And check this out. And then she gets paid to be a mom. Yeah? You know what I'm saying? Okay? So, so here's this woman who thought she lost her child, now gets paid vocationally to be a mom, which is amazing, right? God's twisting here is awesome. Okay? So verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So I want you to get named or get used to that name. It appears over 720 times, 726 times to be exact, in the rest of just the Old Testament alone. It is the name of Moses. The, the baby in the basket was Moses, and Moses is a key figure. The way that we process and understand um, the Jewish gospel, meaning the way that we view the cross looking backwards and our salvation is in the cross, is the way that the Jews view the Exodus. The way that we see Jesus and how he saved us is the way that Yahweh used Moses. There's going to be a lot of connections, so get used to, that, used to that name, because even in Christianity, we believe Jesus is the greater Moses, which I'll talk about at the end. Now, traditionally, within Jewish uh, rites and, tra- and family, the male figure would name the child, but here in this moment, Pharaoh's daughter names the child. But either way, there's a cosmic reminder that ultimately God has given you your name. We see this as a great example in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist is named. It says, and, and, uh, and God gave John his name. There's this uh, idea that God ultimately is the one who names you. And prophetically almost, Pharaoh's daughter probably isn't even aware of this. 
she names the baby in the basket. This, listen to this. Uh, uh, she named him Moses because, and I quote, I drew him out of the water. You hear that? Moses' name by the pharaohs, I drew him out of the water. Okay, you guys seeing what's happening here? Okay, Moses is going to part the Red Sea. You'll see, you'll see. You may not get it now, but you'll see, okay? Just amazing foreshadowing here. She's probably, well, she's not aware of this at this time. So God is doing all this. Okay, so now eventually we're going to reach this baby, becomes a grown man. So some years have passed. Verse 11 says this, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Okay, this is the important language here. He uh, looked this way and that way and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So there's a lot to unpack. First, I want you to notice in verse 11, it says this, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And then again, you see that again uh, uh, towards the end of verse 11, one of his people. Moses is in a very interesting place that we're going to need to tie our own story to. And some of you who are minorities in the room absolutely get this. Moses is ethnically a Jew, but culturally he's an Egyptian. And so Moses work, uh, learns to work in this like double consciousness. He understands as he declares those are his people. He gets it ethnically, but culturally he's been raised as an Egyptian. Now, uh, he sees, as he's looking out at his people, he sees this Egyptian beating this man. He then responds and beats the Egyptian to death, and he hides his, his uh, body in the sand. A few things about this text that just to be aware of, every other time this idea of beat, um, brutally beat, is used in the Old Testament, it's always used with something in the hand. So, for example, David and Goliath with a stone, when Saul tries to kill David with a, uh, a spear, you see this in three or four other accounts where there's something used. So my guess is, uh, my best guess is this uh, Egyptian was probably whipping this Israelite. Moses sees this and uses something, a club or a rock, and hits this Egyptian. It goes too far, and he kills him. Okay? Now, the other thing I want you to be aware of, just of Moses' attitude, uh, Stephen in Acts 7 actually brings up, conjures up this story, and he leaves out the part that where Moses kind of peeks out the doorway seeing this goes on, going on and sees nobody around, and so he goes after the Egyptian. We... we actually attribute ill motive to Moses there, I would contend that what's actually happening is Moses is looking out, he's seeing what's going on, and he looks around, and no other Israelite is responding, so he takes things into his own hands, okay? It's not as malicious. That's not to say he wanted to be seen with hitting an, uh, an Egyptian, but I think it was far more, no one else was going to respond, fine, I'll do something about it. He puts himself as, as this rescuer, okay? So let's keep going. Lots to cover there. Let's go to verse 13. Uh, uh, this man is now dead in the sand, so we have the next day. Moses killed somebody. Let's see what he does this ne next day, right? Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. Moses can't get a break. Everyone's fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Then Pharaoh heard of it. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So I just want you to remember this is a little microcosm. And again, in Acts 7, Stephen brings to remembrance that for the rest of the book of Exodus, here's what you're going to find. Moses tries to um, be some type of ruler or help lead the Israelites, and the Israelites don't like it. You, I promise you, you are going to see that rhythm for the rest of Exodus over and over and over again. So see it as a microcosm. Well, Pharaoh hears about what Moses did the day prior. 
He's not happy. He wants to kill Moses. So Moses flees to the land of Midian. This is where we pick up the story. Now, the priests of Midian had seven daughters. So there's a priest there in Midian, had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs, uh, filled the troughs to water with their, uh, with their father's flock. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. So now we have this whole, the camera's still following Moses, this whole new scene. He's sitting by a well. These women come up to try to get water from the well. These other shepherds who are obviously mean for whatever reason, shoo these women away. Moses stands up to these, uh, each, these uh, other shepherds and saves these women, okay? So they can eventually uh, get water for their flock as well, their father's flock. Verse 18. When they came home, they being the women, came to their father Raul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew for us, uh, drew for us and watered the flock. Verse 20, he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. So the women go home. Dad's like, why are you guys back so early? Well, we had to flee this whole interaction, but this guy saved us. This Egyptian guy, he's wearing Egyptian garments. He saved us from this whole deal. And the dad's like, and you left him at the well? Like, uh, we can at least give him breakfast or something, right? And so um, they, they call him back. Here's something interesting, though, that I find. Moses is now not just in the land of Midian, uh, but he is amongst Midianites. Now, this is where like the theological nerd in me goes crazy because God is doing so many moving doors here. It's hard to keep up. But one of the things that we can be aware of is before Moses, before Pharaoh, before all this, we were introduced to that guy, Joseph, if you were here last week. Well, Joseph's story starts in a bizarre place. Joseph wants to be killed by his brothers. If you remember this story, they throw him in a pit and they're going to kill him. But one of the brothers, Judah, stops them and says, that's, that's not a good idea. Let's not kill him. And something takes place. Let me read this account from you. It's in Genesis 37, uh, verses 26 through 28. It says this, then Judah said to his brothers, Joseph's right now in a, um, in a, a well or a pit. Judah says to his brothers as they're about to kill him, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listen to him. So they're about to kill him. Judah says, let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him, right? Let's sell him as a slave. Listen to verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit, okay? So the reason we're in Egypt is because Midianites brought Joseph to Egypt. The reason we're in Midian is because Moses fled from Egypt to the Midianites. Oh, you see what I'm saying? That's crazy. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, okay. Um, verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Verse 22, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a soldier, soldier in a foreign land. So there's a few things to observe. So now Moses uh, ends up taking one of uh, the Midianite priests, which we'll find he has a few different names, his daughter, Zipporah. He ends up marrying her, having uh, a child, and he names the child essentially on his experience, which is important because there's a few things that go on. Number one, Moses is doing something that's not very Yahweh-ish. Moses does not love the idea that a different religion would marry with uh, a different religion. It's not, that's not, not racist. It's nothing to do with racist, it, it, race, racism or uh, uh, being, yeah, it has nothing to do with racist. Um, and it's everything to do with faiths. Uh, this is what Pharaoh was ultimately trying to do. He was trying to kill off the Israelites by uh, having all of them, their faith would disappear because the men are gone, have the Egyptians give uh, their hand over to the Israelite women. And now, right now, Moses is marrying a woman who is not 
uh, um, Jewish. And so there's something there. But more than that, what I want you to see is as we look at this encounter, uh, Moses has fled and he sits there and the language that's used is he's content. He's content where he is. And it's important because he says, I, I was drawn out of a foreign land. Again, walking in this double consciousness, Moses at this time in his life recognizes the only place he's ever known is Egypt. That's his home. He's away from his home. What we're going to find in the book of Exodus is if you ask Moses 15, 25 chapters from now what his home is, he would call the foreign land Egypt, okay? And so there's a, a, a moving here away from paganism to some form of Yahwehism, right? To follow this Judaism. And I want you to track that because that's important. So let's stop there, okay? Let's stop there. There's a few other verses we're going to read, but I want us to zoom out and see in the same way chapter one is this response and chapter two is a response to, to this battle that's going on in chapter one. What's the thread that we can see? And as I look at chapter two, I think it's um, clear that God, the seed that God plants here is clearly a seed of rescue. What we see happening again and again is Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses. Moses rescues this man who ends up killing the Egyptian. Moses then rescues these women who, who end up uh, having the shepherds flee. There's this continued posture of rescuing. Now, the reason that's important is the camera has been tracking with Moses all of chapter 2. As a matter of fact, without chapter 2 of Exodus, try to read the book of Exodus sometime without chapter 2. You're going to be like, who's this Moses guy? We have all of his backstory summed up in this chapter, but the very end of chapter two, God reminds us of something. He reminds us amidst seeing this Moses figure that ultimately will be a hero, he turns the camera and he brings the lens back to Egypt, almost as a declaration of as Moses is here and he's content, God goes, yeah, but I still have a people over here suffering. And the language that's used, listen to this in verse 23, during those many days, this has been a long time. Moses has his kids at this point. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So Pharaoh dies. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So there's a few things. So the people of Israel cry out. Um, it doesn't even say explicitly that they cried out to God. Can we just acknowledge that? So they just cried out. Uh, Numbers and Kings actually say they cried out to God, but we don't have that here. So just the word cried out. Number two, um, that he, God remembers. I just want to be clear. It's not that God had forgotten about his people. Um, it's not like, oh, I forgot something's on this stove. It's far more like, no, he's part of this story. And he adds in, he's using this anthropomorphic language, this man-made language for us to understand. God, no, no, God's not done. He has a story that he's continuing to connect things to. And that's why he brings up Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac, and, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But, but more than that, here's what I want you to catch. Amidst following the track of Moses, there is a people suffering and God hears it. Now, I wish I can unpack this Hebrew word to its fullest extent. It's hard because, well, Steve gave you an example that you didn't know. Let me give you an example you might know. Um, so this is like you, you're listening to Jimmy, but you don't hear Jimmy, okay? This is from, that's why man can't jump. So if you don't know that, that's just on you, okay? Um, so, so this is the idea that, that it's not just like he can hear moans and cries coming up, it's far more like when, when my two oldest, Corbin and Titus, they're 11 and 9 now, when they were little, like babies, and you'd put them down in their crib for a nap time, they're like weeping, wailing as if the world's going to end, right? And they're, mama, mama. Now, I'm good with it. I'm like, yeah, they're going to be fine. They need to take a nap. They're crying. Let them cry themselves to sleep. 
Candace is like in the fetal position in our papa son chair, like my heart is breaking, right? And I'm going, they're going to be fine, right? Okay. Candace is not just hearing their cries. She's feeling their cries, right? Now, I may not be able to understand that, but what we get in this word that God hears their cries, not just these, he hears it audibly, he has a sense of feeling. Listen to the other verbs that you can see. It's not that he just hears. Listen to the other verbs. He hears, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Look at verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I mean, can we step away from Exodus 2 for a second? I have no idea where you are on your journey, but if Exodus 2 is accurate, wherever you are, it could be like in a great place, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's the loss of a child or the the loss of a family member, the loss of a job, or just the daily grind of existing. You feel like this temptation, this voice to go, he doesn't know, he doesn't care. And yet here's this declaration, hear me, he sees you. He sees you. And, and he, he knows. What I find so interesting in the theological timeline of the Bible, it's not just Yahweh from afar saying he knows. This is where we have to begin to plug into Jesus. It's not just a God who sees and he knows. Yeah, you know what it's like. Jesus ends up entering into suffering. God, who sees his people suffering, enters into suffering. He feels frustration with the Pharisees. He's angry at the hypocrisy around people who are marginalized and poor. He continues to have empathy on people who are suffering. He enters into that. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 2, listen to how the God who sees, who hears, as he becomes flesh, describing Jesus, listen to how uh, Hebrews 2 describes him. For it was fitting that he, talking about God the Father, for God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, you're there, you're the there, their salvation, us, make our salvation, the founder being Jesus, making Jesus the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. God the Father doesn't just say, man, I, uh, like, I see you, I, yes, I'm, I'm trying to understand. He enters into that by the declaration of becoming perfect through suffering, fully understanding by fully experiencing He goes on because he's not even done there. Listen to this. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So he's not just from afar. Jesus then enters on the scene and goes, listen, we're siblings. Nobody knows your family history and your story, the grit of being beat by your father like your siblings do. And now in this moment, there's a recollection that Jesus knows not just what it's like to see the suffering of his people. He knows what it's like to suffer with them. He enters into it, but he's still not done. Listen to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And I cannot but help see verse 15 as connecting perfectly to Exodus, the book of Exodus. Listen to this. And deliver, this is Jesus, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus enters into suffering so that you don't have to be a slave anymore. Like the whole YOLO, like you don't have to, like I only have one life, I got to get it all in. Jesus like, stop. Like I freed you from that. 
And so all the compilation of having to gain as many riches as possible, like as much fame as possible, as much prestige as possible, to have the perfect Joneses family, to have it all together, you can stop with that garbage. You don't have to go there. You're freed from that bondage, from that slavery, because what he did, coming as a brother, coming under suffering, this is good news. Jesus is a far better Moses. Because here's what Moses is doing. Moses has his kids, and he is, you ready? He's content. He's content. That's not the story of the God we serve, who still sees the people suffering, which leads me to believe there's two things that I think we need to acknowledge for me to close. The first thing is this. Some of you are content, and I don't mean in a good way. There's a great way to be content, but there are some of you um, who, who have walked the edges of compromise. And so you've allowed the power of Pharaoh and the power of the gods of this world to fill your soul that there's no room for Yahweh anywhere. And so you don't, you don't, like you're good, you're good where you are, but you're not experiencing suffering, not just in the daily grind of what suffering is, you don't enter into other people's suffering. You don't see the brokenness with you, you're content, you're in Midian, homie, God's in Egypt. Do you understand? He's with the suffering, which leads to the second thing. We cannot help but declare the fact that as Exodus ties itself to the New Testament, as, as the people of God in Exodus are called out of slavery to do something, so are the believers. Listen, far after this Moses figure grows up, has kids, he's going to go back to Egypt, all this stuff takes place after Exodus 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to chapter 19. I want you to listen. As God rescues his people, this is what God declares to his people who he brought out of slavery. You ready? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying... Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you hear that? You saw, I saved you. I rescued you out of slavery. This is what God's saying to the people of Israel long after Exodus 2. Verse 5, now therefore, I saved you. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation i saved you i brought i i brought salvation to where you are rescuing you out of slavery i'm giving you that same mandate mandate to all peoples now first peter picks up on this exact language peter being ethnically a jew knows the story of exodus listen to what he says in first peter chapter 2 same exact language but you now this is to the church this is to you and i but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood sound familiar a holy nation sound familiar a people for his own possession sound familiar then listen that you <laughs> like sometimes in the reform world we get so caught up in the privileges of the whole conversation of election and we forget the responsibilities Listen to me, you have been saved and called to be a believer with an obligation. That you, you have been saved that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the same language. We're not in Midian. We're called to go back to Egypt. I'm not done though. Listen to some other verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's throw it on a coffee mug. We love that verse. We're all about that verse. But, but listen to verse 18. All this is from God. You're a new creation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Yes and amen. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Yes and amen, right? Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to them, uh, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Listen to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So to not be content is to be the voice of Yahweh to the people who are suffering. We get to be his hands and feet. Matter of fact, the way this book in 2 Corinthians starts in chapter 1, it starts with this. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is a God, we serve a God who brings comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And it goes on and you can read the rest. But here's the declaration. God has brought us comfort. That doesn't mean an easy life. That doesn't mean uh, all the wrong versions of contentment. It's not going to be easy. But at the end of the day, you have something your neighbor or your non-believing friend, coworker, family member doesn't have. You have hope. You've been reconciled from the bondage of slavery. And you're content. You and I are we're content in Midian. But God has called us from there to go to all nations, to be his ambassadors, to be his holy people. To, to call people to reconciliation the way that we've been called to reconciliation. To be to them what he was to us. Spurgeon says it perfect. The people of God are either missionaries or they're imposters. My prayer is that we would be the missionaries. Let's pray. Spirit, fill our hearts with insane amounts of gratitude right now so many of us were saved later in life that we can remember very vividly where we were before we met you the mess we were the family dynamic we came from how much we even hated you and yet here we are so i pray spirit permeate our hearts now with gratitude and then father i pray that you would send your spirit to move us with that gratitude towards a people who don't have very many things to be grateful for, that you'd move us as a missionary people towards the suffering in Egypt, towards the pagan lands, towards our neighbors, our co-workers, that we would be ambassadors for you, Jesus. Let us do this well. Father, thanks for, for saving us. Thanks for being so good to us when we were not uh, grateful, when we were not faithful. Thank you for uh, Exodus 2 and the reminder that it is. We love you, Jesus. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so at this time, we're going to take some time and uh, respond. And here's what I would encourage you. Before I give us some ways to corporately respond, there's uh, an important kind of back way that you just, all of us need to respond as individuals. And the reality is I can do my best to break down Exodus 2. But if Hebrews 10, 14 is true, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it's only going to be the spirit brushing along the word of God to stir something within you. There's nothing that I can say to do that. And so we need to respond, even as individuals, to what the spirit is saying to us through Exodus 2. And so we're going to respond corporately, but I would encourage you, whether it be through worship or taking communion or just sitting, that maybe God would begin to stir on you what, what he wants uh, you to hear through his spirit. Now, we will respond corporately in a, a couple different ways. So I'm going to ask the communion holders to come forward. So if you're not familiar with how this is, uh, people are going to stand up. Uh, they're going to come to the, the front. They're going to kind of peel off. And we're going to take communion 
what we're doing in Take Communion, if you're not familiar with this, we're taking a piece of bread and we're dipping it into wine or juice, whatever your preference is. And the reason we're doing this is Jesus gives us these clear, um, tangible ways to remember as this piece of bread will represent uh, symbolically his body that was like totally given up in entering into that suffering for us and his blood absolutely being shed so we can walk in a new covenant. We don't have to have that lifelong version of slavery always put upon us. And so we remember the work of Jesus on the cross by taking communion. So if you're not a believer in here, it's actually like way more cool for you to sit this one out. We actually appreciate that you respect our tradition and our religion. And if you're not there, that's awesome. We, we hope one day you'll want to take it. But if you don't, that's okay. Um, so here's another way that we're going to respond. We're also going to pray. So there's some people to, to pray for you that you'll see on both sides. If you need prayer for whatever it is, maybe you are caught in that bondage, whatever it is, and you need prayer to do that as well. We're also going to worship with songs that are intentionally designed uh, to stir our souls towards what the gospel is reminding us of. And then we're also going to give, which I made a joke that all of the money given today will go to Redemption Fury and First Service, but really it is going to go. I'm going to say it now, so Frank has to do it. Um, no, it's not. It's not going to Redemption Fury. Uh, so so if, if you want to give, there's some boxes that are in the back, right? And then there's a way to give here on the screen. Here's what I would say also. Again, if you're not a believer or you don't call this place your home, those boxes and that number is really not for you. What we see at Redemption Peoria is we give as a church, not to a church. And so if you call this place your home, this is where we give, right? This is what we give to. But if not, we're just glad you're here. So I'm going to pray for us. Can you guys stand to your feet one more time? Then we'll uh, respond corporately together and uh, with uh, kicking it off with communion. So Jesus... Uh, as we respond as a corporate body now, uh, you've given us all stories and backgrounds. I pray that we'd realize how much we need each other as we rely on you. I pray we'd be a people who moves towards those who are, are suffering. Uh, we love you. We pray over uh, communion, giving, prayer, and worship that you'd smile upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.